Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. And what I have for you today is a special bonus episode. Uh, I am now back home in great old Oklahoma, but the last week I've been in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the Southwest PCA Conference. And what I have uh, gathered together for you, dear listener, is a set of interviews uh, from some very, very interesting people that I know from the conference. The first interview you're about to hear is from Charlie Burdu. He's the acquisitions editor at McFarland and Company uh, Publishing, uh, who make some of the best pop culture studies books out there. And so uh, really, really um, interesting interview and questions uh, with him just about the industry and about what they do. I also have an interview with Elizabeth Collins, who's talking about the university as constructed in popular culture with this particular emphasis on community and some other television series and uh, some great uh, analysis of Jeffersonian dominionism. Really interesting stuff. And finally, I have an interview with Ian Dahl, who's just got a book coming out on Breaking Bad and masculinity. And so we'll be talking Breaking Bad with Ian about that. Be sure you check out the show notes. I mentioned them a few times in the interviews. Uh, there's a lot of great links to things that are talked about in each of those interviews and good works that you'd want to see and check more of. But this, dear listener, again, is pure bonus, just extra stuff for you all uh, because we love you here at the Good Trash Honor Cast and we want to expose you to as much interesting pop culture analysis as we possibly can. So hope you're having, again, great days as you're listening to this bonus episode and I hope you enjoy uh, what we found uh, there in Albuquerque. Mm. Don't look much like Los Angeles to me. I knew I should have taken that left coin at Albuquerque. Paperback All right, everybody, dear listeners, thank you so much for tuning in again. We're here at the Southwest uh, Pop Culture Association Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You hear the ambient sound as we're in the uh, wonderful Hyatt Regency. And I'm so happy to be here with Charlie uh, Perdue, who is uh, on the editorial staff at McFarland Publishing, who produces the best, I'm going to say it, the best book stand at the conference. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> Let me say it's a... Uh, uh, McFarlane and Company Incorporated, uh, okay, yeah, comma, we, publishers. Yeah, just going to be technical about it. We want to get the terms correctly. Thank yes, you for yes, that. And Never McFarlane Press. Oh, thank you. Yes. That's a different thing altogether, isn't it? It is, indeed. Don't oh. ask me why. I don't know why. But That's yeah. somebody else, I'm sure. Like yeah, all I the names. I was indoctrinated in this early. <laughs> That's funny. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to be talking here with Charlie because he is... Um, he is uh, working with the company that's producing some of the best books in the things that we do on the show, doing critical analysis on what may be called low culture, although, again, we don't believe in sort of a sense of low culture at all on this show. It hurts. Uh, doesn't it, though? It, it's really a pejorative thing this. to say. You know, I, admittedly, we are you know tucked away in sort of a remote area of North Carolina by some standards, but you know, this whole low culture thing is... Is not crept down to Jefferson, you know, where we are based. I didn't know that, and you know, it hurts, no, even, it which, hurts what, to hear it. Who what, said that? What? What? What person casts this? You know, the institutions. It's uh, the man. The really. man says it. Uh, well, see, you know, we are very close to uh, East Carolina. I mean, East Carolina. We're not very close to East Carolina. <laughs> 
let me add, it is the cocktail hour, just in case you're wondering. Uh, and uh, But we're very close to East Tennessee State University, which used to be the home of, and I guess maybe, I think they publish it through a different uh, press right now, but uh, basically the home of uh, pop culture studies. So, you know, probably in our neighborhood, nobody would say something like that. You know, Ray Brown is the father of popular culture. Uh, Gary Hoppenstand is, you know, well-known in the field and, you know, he's one of the authors. And, you know, don't ask me how, but ETSU wound up being sort of the center of, you know, pop culture studies when it first, you know, in its formative years, which I guess is probably 40 years ago now, something like that probably. But uh, So in our neck of the woods, you know, that... Uh, them fighting words. Uh, now, where are you guys I, located? They, uh, do you know where? Are you? Do you happen to be familiar with uh, where Appalachian State University is? I don't know that okay. university Boom. in particular. No. Uh, dude, the, the university that beat Michigan in fo- football like yes. five years ago, or something yes, like that. I Our greatest that. moment of uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, imagine North Carolina. Uh huh. It's flat on top. It comes starts to come to a point, right? Right. And it's. It's the greatly, and I think, uh, unrecognized and underappreciated uh, three corners, if you can have that, and I guess you can, of, of, of America. Not like the four corners area, which everybody, hey, let's go stand in four, you know, four states. Right. Where, where Virginia and Tennessee meet, uh, North Carolina is like right on that county where, you know, my finger's crooked, but if it's uh-huh. straight, you know, North Carolina's flat on top and it starts to dip down in that corner right. county where the dip is, Virginia hits it on the top side, the north side, Tennessee hits it on... The, okay. Uh, on the OS. No, I, I see. I was good in geography. And there may or may not be a spot there where all three come together. I'm not absolutely certain. <laughs> Probably not, which is why it's not uh, like the four corners. But that's Ash County, right? So, mm-hmm. Which is one county north of Watauga County, which is where Appalachian is. Okay. Okay. And so uh, we are, uh, you know, about, I don't know, 110 miles north northwest of Greensboro. Okay, 90 under, miles under directly north of Asheville, but we're in the top part of the state in the corner. Corner okay. County. Uh, now, do you guys have a relationship with Appalachian University? Uh, well, we have, um, you know, our, our president, I think, has been on the library board. And, I mean, he was on the uh, uh, the uh, American Library Association board for many years. But um, kind of founding the company to sort of help, you know, serve and enhance librarianship and whatnot. We've evolved far beyond that, mostly because librarians don't write enough books. Right. And the ones that they do write are too damn short. No offense to librarians, uh, but still, uh, they find it hard to comprehend that, <laughs> that seventy-five thousand words does not mean fifty to sixty thousand words. So it always shows up. Uh, but um, yeah, we always had a close relationship with them, um, and uh, you know, we yeah, that was kind of when he left Scarecrow. It was to he saw a niche in you know library-oriented titles that uh, you know, he thought he could fill. Um, Scarecrow, there was some political upheaval and turnover at the time, and right. his mentor was, I think, you know, vice president, president, something, uh, who knows, Eric Moon, who's famous among the librarians. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, librarians who know his name, but, you know, it became apparent that Eric was on the way out, and since Robbie's his protege, you know, Robbie, you know, saw the writing on the wall. And so we've always had, like, you know, a strong relationship with uh, them and you know, any public library in the area, but, yeah, Appalachian in particular, we're... Even you know, Gary Mitchum, our senior acquisitions editor, his wife works at Appalachian's library, and yeah, you know, I mean it's it, it's a natural relationship just because they're there. Because you know, you're there, right? That's our market. You know, always or at least uh, in the early days, that was 
with the bulk. Uh, yeah, up until, I don't know, probably it was before I started working at McFarland, but uh, probably up until about 20 years ago, I would say, you know, it, it was, you know, libraries were the targeted market. It didn't extend beyond that. You didn't mm-hmm. have things like Amazon. You know, right. everything was library binding, you know, cloth bindings, because that's what libraries wanted. But um, there came a point where they changed their sort of uh, philosophy, probably because they lost all their money, you know, funding and whatnot, and uh, moved away from cloth bindings. And, you know, they liked, they actually liked illustrated trade bindings. You know, I mean, illustrated, illustrated case-bound uh, books. A picture on the cover. No uh, dust jacket, because they just toss those away, but... I think because patrons like, you know, a book that you pull out and there's, a, you know, an interesting picture on the cover that's about the freaking topic of the book. But right. the, And then they moved to, you know, they're fine with soft cover books because, you know, I mean, a library book is going to get handled, but it's, if it gets checked out by, you know, 100 patrons, that's a really successful library book. Yes, so it, it might get handled 20 times over the course of a couple of years or something, which is worthy, you know, it's worthy of having it there. People need it, but uh, it, it can withstand that even in the paperback format. Uh, whereas, you know, that used to be the thinking was, you know, it has to be a hard copy or, you know, a hard cover. It's going to, uh, you know, just fall apart. But, yeah, and the key point being, it's a heck of a lot cheaper, you know, to do it that way. So, I mean, it's better for us, it's better for them. They're fine with it. They like it. So, um, you know, it's, uh, we, yeah. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, people still like books. Yeah, they do. Libraries still buy books when they can, <laughs> you know. Right. So, uh, you know, and that's what keeps us afloat. And I'm, you know, thankful for that. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, we appreciate McFarland because what they're doing is they're legitimizing what we're doing as a podcast and as um, scholars who love culture just American culture in whatever way it comes and so we're, we're very very thankful for you guys you guys, you guys have some of the best books um, my my shelves in my own personal library are lined with McFarland books and so yours too huh <laughs> and so I'm glad glad uh, to be talking about that what is McFarland about I mean what is sort of their mission and um, what is your role in that uh, well Kind of a complicated question, but uh, you know uh, we're basically about you know, finding an outlet for you know worthy uh, nonfiction, academic, scholarly books and books that go beyond that. They may not be scholarly at all. Um, they may be uh, written more for a sort of a you know the serious fans of a particular subject, like old old time radio. You know, it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be scholarly. The audience for that is going to be people who listen to old time radio. Completely different thing. But you know, feeling a you know we began to fill sort of a niche that was, you know, our, our president, actually, I should correct that, our founder and editor-in-chief, who has just passed the mantle of president on to uh, Rhonda Herman, our former vice president. She's now president. And Robbie, uh, while well, he still basically does all the same things, but he's, you know, he's, Rhonda, it's your turn to be president. But, you know, he started out to sort of fill a niche that he didn't think was being filled, and he worked for a, a library-oriented publisher at the time, so he uh, was very familiar with, you know, what they were doing and maybe the few things that they weren't doing. So, over time, I mean, you know, filling that same niche has become, you know, what we do, but on the other hand, uh, we're no longer filling a niche that's not necessarily being filled because, as you well know, we're surrounded by publishers who, 
uh, share our subject areas and also share our authors in many cases. Uh, you're just doing you the know. best job of it. Yeah, well, uh, you're awful. <laughs> you're, once again, you're you're sweet. I, mean, I appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, uh, finding a you know just providing a home for authors who you know may uh, you know not to be able to easily find uh, you know a home otherwise. Maybe they're not um, associated with the university and have uh, really good connections and you know, can get it published through university press. They might be independent scholars, um, you know, any number of reasons why they might come to us. Maybe they're fed up with the, you know, in some cases, the politics of, you know, university publishing, uh, you know, and we're just, you know, we are, we're, you know, as we've always, you know, not really said, but as, you know, I often say, uh, we're basically kissing cousins to a university press, only, uh, you know, so we have a little more freedom maybe to to, uh, you know, to choose how we operate and what we publish and don't have to worry about uh, whether it's going to sort of, uh, you know, meet the uh, expectations and dictates of, you know, some other element of, say, the university, if you are a university press. So, uh, you know, we can we can publish what we want, you know, we don't mm-hmm. have to worry about, you know, whether we're funding from outside sources, although it's, uh, you know, uh, scholarly and academic publishing is... It's right up there with grocery stores in terms of the percentage of profit. You know, one percent profit is what we always say. It's probably you know one to three percent is what I would guess. Uh, you know, it's a it's a low profit margin business. But um, you know, it's basically publishing those those books that are going to serve the needs of both you know scholars, uh, librarians, uh, you know, uh, and you know general people who are interested in a subject in kind of a deep way and want a serious treatment of it, uh, you know, just finding homes for those books. You know, you know that I'm always reminded, for whatever reason, of, you know, the fact that when Robbie founded the company, the first year, you know, McFarlane published six books. And, you know, they were probably like, you would look at them today and think they were done on a typewriter or something, but that's the way that probably every, you know academic book at the time was published. One that put us over the top in terms of like making a difference as to whether or not we would you know, make a profit and survive as a company was the Goat Care Handbook. And that may be apocryphal. It may not be. That's funny. But you know, my understanding is the Goat Care Handbook was the one that sort of tipped the scales. And you know, interestingly enough, uh, at least the second edition, maybe not the second, maybe the third, of the Goat Care Handbook is still in print. And it's we so just funny. had our we had our 35th anniversary uh, party uh, last summer. So you know we're in our we were founded in 1979, and that book, which I imagine probably had a 1980 copyright date, is still in print. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you know it's, uh, we we have open minds, and we'll try just about anything. You know, and we'll yeah. we'll try it again, having forgotten that it didn't work the first time. You know, so you know. Well, and that's that is sort of what being an independent publisher is sort of the that's what it allows you and not being you know under the umbrella of some giant corporate uh, you know uh, I don't want to I don't know what the proper word is uh, you know some you know overriding you know, somebody else has ideas about uh, you know how you should you know perform and what your margins need to be and blah 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 we'll take a chance we'll lose money you know most times when you take a chance you lose money but not every time every once in a while you hit a home run so you know and uh, being far removed from the sort of the central hub of uh, you know publishing uh, which is you know places like Boston New York whatever uh, you know we just, you know, none of that stuff ever occurs to us. You know, there's no corporate overlords, not to, you know, just the corporate overlords, mm-hmm. um, you know, making bowing gestures now, uh, anything like that. Yeah, I mean, 
we do what we want to do. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. So speaking of in Even terms, we know it's a bad idea. <laughs> funny. Speaking in terms of you know willing to try anything, can you tell me about a moment when you were most surprised by how impressive? A book was when you finally got the proposal. I can absolutely tell you that. It's I would one love of my to hear favorite that. stories of all time. Uh, probably the second or third year that I was at McFarland, I was a lowly uh, editorial assistant, I believe, at the time. I got a proposal for a book on the television uh, works, career, series. Of Norman Lear, who was responsible okay. for Sanford and Son to <laughs> that, that seems a little strange. Maud, yeah. and uh, I mean, and Norman Lear was a definition of television in the 1970s and into the 80s, and changed the way that we look at sitcoms. It went from being Leave It to Beaver to being, you know, uh, you know, Sanford and Son or Maud debating whether or not she's going to have an abortion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Archie Bunker. You know, that's Norman Lear. I mean, he gave us everything. Uh, he, he basically, everything that was important that came out on television from about 1970 through the mid-80s until about the uh, the Don Cosby show was the work of Norman Lear. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he owned a copy of the, he owned an original copy of the damn Declaration of Independence of the Constitution, one or the other. He's one of, like, there's like 11, you know, six, 11 copies of this in the world. And Norman Lear owned one of them. I mean, he just, you know, he's just an amazing guy uh, mm-hmm. with an amazing track record in TV and, you know, completely changed, you know, situation comedies, uh, you know, until they went back to crap like Three's Company and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, he brought seriousness to it, you know, and uh, uh, nobody had ever done a book on the works of Norman Lear, you know, the seminal, you know, um, iconic character of television. And so I get this proposal from a guy who's you know, an author named Sean Cunningham who has charted out and done interviews with and has photographs for uh, a book about Norman Lear and his career. We're going to link in in the show notes to your listener Sean Cunningham's book about Norman okay, Lear yes, just I, because I, well, of I'm this. pretty sure I'm confident it's still in print. Sean, at the time, it turns out, was... I don't know how... how Early in his high school career, he was, but I think Sean might have been either sixteen or seventeen. He was he was what? in high school. This kid was in high school. Somehow, I think through something like TV Land or some you know cable outlet, you know when it was just repeating a lot of seventies, he had become fascinated and intrigued by the works of Norman Lear, and was obviously a very sharp guy, and had written a manuscript on you know uh, you know That's the works fantastic. of, and we published that book and. I was. It was a. It was a joy to work with the kid the whole way through, and he was probably he might have been eighteen. I think he was on his way to college, possibly when it came out, but maybe not. He might have been a senior in high school. But um, you know, to me, it was just one of the most. Uh, and you know, I don't want to say anything negative about um, you know some of our you know authors who are professors and you know doctors of this, that, and the other. Of but course not. Sean did uh, you know just an impeccable job, and it was you know there was this kid who could. You know, just gotten his driver's license and had written the first book and pretty much the seminal book on the, the life and works of Norman Lear, who is, I saw on uh, TV on, I think, John Stewart. Don't get me started on Stewart or I'll cry. But it was on either Stewart or Colbert um, probably two or three months ago. You know, he's still 
somebody they discuss television with and bring on and whatnot. Right. You've probably written a book. I don't know. That's why everybody's on TV. They've written a book. You know, so I expect that that's something to do with it. But I was, you know, that's the moment when I was like just really blown away by um, by by an author, you know, and, and realized that you know there's people that of all stripes that you know have a damn good book in them. You know? mm-hmm. Sean, that was his book. You know. I, Asked him on occasion, hey man, you want to do another book? But things like college and you know, stuff like that got in the way, and you know, maybe that's uh, not his fascination anymore. But I've never been more impressed, uh, you know, with an author just just in a sort of overarching fashion. You know, to be you know, that young and to be able to actually conceive how important this is, something that you know been written about in essays and things like that, but you know, nobody had ever done a book on it. And kind of put it all together, and you know, here's Sean, and just does a great job. And I've probably probably never been prouder of a book you know, that, that we published and it was one of my you know early acquisitions so that I you know will never forget you know that was it was just a good moment you know it's like when it finally came out you know yeah. there's Norman Lear on the cover he always wears the same little hat I forgot who did the introduction or, or the foreword but he might have done the foreword for it I can't remember it's been a long time sure uh, but um, you know it's just moments that, like that that make you uh, you know really appreciate the you know the the, you know how good the job can be, even you know if it seems tedious and uh, sort of overwhelming at lots of other times. You know, there's those celebratory uh, moments that make you uh, just sort of think, and hey, this is great. Um, and you know, good books in general are, are like that. You know, you're just proud and happy when you see something that you had something to do with, and you know it's a good work. And you know, there it is on our, when you walk into our foyer. There they are, the books that we published in the last week or so, and you know. Uh, you know, as an aside, we published like 1.4 books per business day or 1.2 books per per business day. I, mm. I forget what it works out to, but, you know, divide how many working days there are in a year, taking out weekends by approximately 400 books, and it's, it's well over a book a day. It might, it might be 1.4, which is a ridiculously high number of books to be cranked out by, you know, the 50-odd uh, people in the mountains of North Carolina. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You will not find a ratio like that in any other publishing company in uh, America, I would guarantee you. So, you know, and it's grown and keeps growing. Fantastic. <laughs> well, well that, 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 that's brilliant. I, I love that story. And I love the sort of democratization of scholarship and that sort of uh, recurring theme with the interviews that we're doing so far this week. So that's really, really, really cool. Um, the last question I have for you is... Um, why is what we do with pop culture instead of, you know, again, the sort of quote-unquote and, and, and air quotes and brackets and, you know, total... High culture. Yeah, you know, high culture. Right. You know, right. Why, why is what we do with low culture important? There's that word again, because that's what keeps, you know, people engaged. You know? I mean, this is what you grew up with, it's what you I grew up with, it's what kids are interested in and as like you know the world becomes more and more sort of full of distractions uh you know i live i don't have a smartphone you know i'll go ahead and say that i don't have a damn smartphone because we can't get a data plan where we live we're like that spot on the map in the state that right. is gray when the everything else is orange and, and we argue with people online on the phone when we try to get a data plan about this uh, you know, so I don't have that, but you know, all my nephews, everybody else, everybody on they're looking at their phones, they're looking up things on the computer, and uh, you know, everything is distracted. But you know, the things that people are interested in and really pay attention to are what you know falls under the heading of pop culture. You know, I mean, my nephews love things like Supernatural, 
uh, you know, and it just, you know, and, and you know, my little, little tiny nephews are fascinated by Minecraft or, you know, mm-hmm. and all these things are what they're just completely engrossed in and what, you know, engages their attention. Whereas, you know, things that, you know, if you tried to get them to read a book, you know, this thing, it doesn't have buttons and a screen on it that you, you know, they, they would just, you know, scoff at you and, and, and it's also, so, I mean, you know, you have to keep, to keep kids, uh, you know, not just kids, but, you know, as they grow into young adults, you know, and as they age, you know, those things are going to be what capture their attention and keep them focused and, and don't, like, you know, kind of bore them. In my day, uh, you know, probably in your day when you were growing up, you didn't have all this, you know, instant access to everything in the world that you could possibly want to know. And so... Well, the joke on the show is I'm the old guy. So, right. Yeah, hey, totally, yeah, well, I'm the older totally guy. my story. Right, yeah. right. I mean, you know, what you, like, had thrown at you in terms of what may or may not interest you came from people like teachers, you know, and right. that's sort of what, you know, there's where you picked up on, you know, what you found interesting and what you didn't, and what you tuned out and what you, you know, didn't. These days, I mean, you know... They're already like tuned in on what they're interested in and whatnot, and so I, you know it's almost sort of hopeless to like introduce it in a way that does not relate in some way, shape, or fashion to something they can feel you know connected to and associate with, and you know kind of put two and two together. And so like it's just, I mean, I hear from professors all the time is a way to keep the students interested, you know, and it, it goes beyond that obviously but um, you know it, from there it just you know mushrooms and grows mm. uh, and uh, you know and things like we do we do more serious baseball titles than any publisher and including a certain university press that's well known for doing baseball serious baseball titles that I shall not name uh, <laughs> in the Midwest Voldemort press right, is what uh, we right. Mean but um, <laughs> but the, you know there's a way that uh, you know you can keep um, not you know, not just guys but also girls you know sports for instance is a great way to keep people sort of focused on the subject at hand and it lends itself to you know, multiple uh, you know examinations of anything from race to uh, hell mathematics I guess if you want to go that far but you know culture you know society uh, you know any kind of subject can be sort of tied into things like baseball which are you know ubiquitous throughout American culture and also have really great record keeping data you know it's there for you to work with the history is in place you can explore race and ethnicity and you know all kinds of things through sports and in, in particular boxing and baseball which sort of didn't lend itself to this because you know they're really well documented I mean it was in the police gazette it was you know uh, you had to run around and have your boxing match in like a barn at 2 o'clock in the morning where nobody knew about it because it was quote unquote illegal but um, you know it's all very well uh, documented and the history is there and it's also something that you know it's not as dry to you know people when it's presented in a way that you know sort of has a different element to it that kind of keeps them interested in I mean, not kind of it keeps them interested Absolutely. in, you know, and uh, just a, a lot of what we publish is sort of, uh, you know, includes, especially in the, in the pop culture area uh, and what the sports books that are picked up for classroom use, uh, you know, they have that element to them. You know, a lot of the, what we publish is just straightforward history, you know, you know literary criticism, uh, things that are geared more towards them, you know, uh, graduate student slash uh, you know uh, professor type uh, readership that Mm -hmm. uh, they don't need that to get them you know into a subject they're already there but if you're not already there you know 
and you, people can't find a way to sort of you know engage your interests, you're never going to get there. So you know, I mean, that's why I see pop culture as being so so important. But, and it's 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 what we live in. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I love all the I love all the shows that we well not all the shows we publish books about, but things like Sherlock and uh, you know uh, Doctor Who and. I don't have television. I get my internet. I'm going to have TV through the internet. Uh, an hour after, as soon as it goes off television, it's available through, um, I would, I'll say, legitimate sources on the internet. So, um, like yeah, Hulu? we pick and choose. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. We pick and choose what we want to watch, and yet we never have time enough to watch everything that we want to watch. But all the things we watch are the things that our authors are writing about, which you know, it helps me stay, uh, you know, really, you know, involved and interested in what's going on. You know, I'm like, I love that freaking show. I mean, have you seen Rectify? I never thought I'd like this show, Rectify. It's on the Sundance channel. If you haven't seen Rectify, you need to go watch that shit now because you will be blown away. <laughs> Dear listener, your syllabus, again, just got longer. Check out Rectify. Seriously. I mean, this is about a guy who just got out of jail and goes home to live in his hometown and... You know, has to do, and I, I read that synopsis and thought, I'm never gonna. There's no way in the world I would like this. He's across with me like Elvis, Buddha, and uh, you know, uh, somebody with you know, it's sort of on on the autistic spectrum. And he's funny. fascinating. I mean, it is mm-hmm. just freaking fascinating. It's on the Sundance Channel, so it's not uh, you know as well known as it should be. But I mean, it is just an amazing show. And we'll be getting proposals on that before too long. If we don't, I will be disappointed. So anyone out there who does like Rectify. You know, by all means, get in touch. <laughs> well, there you go, dear listener. There are many opportunities for publishing at McFarland Press. I mean, there's a lot of things happening right now in pop oh, culture. Dude. McFarland and Company Inc. McFarland and Company Inc. I, I, I keep doing it wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's McFarland a and Company Inc. And they're doing amazing things, and uh, they're working uh, in, in exactly the good trash that we work in. Here at the I Good like Trash that. Genre Cast, <laughs> and so we're we're so thank you again, Charlie. Um, uh, it's Charlie been my Perdue, pleasure. Um, editor at um, uh, acquisitions Carl, editor, acquisitions editor. Right, to be, right. Those be very specific, right? Yes, yes, yes. And so, we're, we're, and I believe that uh, you know it used to be McFarlandPub.com, uh, but I'm pretty confident that our our address has changed to McFarlandBooks.com. So uh, you know it's a little more. Uh, a, a little less confusing, you know. Pubs can be different things. It can be short for publishing or pub. Correct. Uh, right, so McFarlandBooks.com. Again, dear listener, check the show notes because we'll definitely make sure there are links there uh, for that because there are a great many wonderful books. And, again, I'm, as the only host who is here at the uh, Albuquerque Southwest uh, PCA conference, I'm going to tell you right now, McFarland Books have um, helped me so much in my academic career. And have just edified me as a human being. I Talk mean, to us about peer review. <laughs> for real. And that's a real thing that's going on right now. Thank you again, Charlie, for being on the show. Thank and, you. It's uh, been a pleasure. It's so great to have you here. And uh, we'll, we're going to keep moving on as we talk about the uh, Southwest PCA. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll have another interview here in just a few moments. Give me a hand, show me the door. I cannot stand to wait anymore. Somebody said, be what you be. We could be old and cold and dead on the sea. But I love you more than words can say. Why can't you believe?
Thank you again, dear listener. Uh, I'm back here at the Southwest Pop Culture Association Conference. I'm really excited to be talking to uh, uh, kind of a two-year and plus friend, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Collins, uh, right now. Elizabeth, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, what you're studying, and what your interests are? Sure. Uh, I'm I'm a graduate student at the University of Northern Iowa. I'm a master's student in the English Studies program, so... Um, let's see, my thesis right now is on the two cultures, uh, that's the sciences and the humanities and how they interact and don't interact at universities. Um, so I'm trying to think of ways that we can sort of bridge that gap and yeah, and I'm, I'm here at the conference talking about, um, uh, well, I'm talking about how popular culture presents images of campuses and universities, so I'm looking at different television shows based on campuses, like Community, Greek, and Undeclared are the three that I'm looking at specifically, and we're looking at the original Jeffersonian, um, I guess, view of campuses. Am I going on too long here? Is this okay? This is great. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So the original Jeffersonian perception of, uh, or how he, he came up with the idea for the University of Virginia and what he called the academical village. Excellent. So, uh, we're going to talk more about that, that in just a few moments. <laughs> no, no, that's great, Elizabeth. Okay. Um, do tell the dear listener, though, uh, for just a moment, yep. you know, you've been accepted at least one PhD program at yes. this point. Yes. And so we do want to hear a little bit about um, sort of your future research interests, especially regarding science and the humanities, because I find that personally very fascinating. Yes. Yeah, I'm very interested in the two cultures. And so the programs I'm applying to are uh, kind of American studies programs and English studies programs. But I'm, yes, I'm interested in looking at sort of the development of the two cultures at universities. And so I'm really interested in, I guess, the, the history of departments and disciplinarity and how all that developed in early sort of late 19th, early 20th century American universities, right when they were just sort of starting to, you know, find their own way and starting to differentiate themselves from the British universities. And so how did that all come about? So, Awesome. Now, a, a term you've deployed around me, and I understand, I think, but I want more explanation, and I'm sure the dear listener would, mm-hmm. is, is the humanities yes. of science. Yes. So can you tell me what that means? Well, it's great. So one of the, yeah, the program that I have been accepted to is a history of science program. So it's looking at science through the lens of a historian, which is great. It's like the ultimate definition of interdisciplinarity. You're using the humanitarian, or not humanitarian, the humanities view of science. So I, I don't know. I, I just, I love that concept, but you're going to be like, looking at figures, historical names, historical occurrences, and, I don't know, yeah, looking at them through a historical lens. So. See, I, I find that really exciting and interesting to me because, you know, we sometimes think of the sciences for this purely empirical, mm-hmm. you know, edifice. Right. 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 And, and, and part of what you're talking about is for the, the enculturation and the historicity, yes, right, yes, uh, of, of of movements within science, yeah. and that science, like the arts, mm-hmm. has movements, right? It does, absolutely, yeah, and and I mean, you're right. It's kind of it's not common sense necessarily to bring a 
as we might say, a more subjective, right, humanities view to science. But I don't know, I think it's important um, just in considering how we use science. You know, you have to bring that sort of moralistic human aspect to science. So, mm-hmm. and you're right, and considering the movements that it goes through, I mean, a large influence on those movements is the the social atmosphere of the time you know like science during the cold war was very different from science during the enlightenment era so you know it all, it's all intertwined and so it's very important to have that interdisciplinary view of it so yeah excellent excellent <laughs> I, 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 thank you thank you for doing that that, yeah. that that's again um sort of more academic than our typical pedigree on the show but yeah. no no it's brilliant stuff and mm-hmm. you know just sort of things to be looking for as you look for books written by miss elizabeth ann collins um it's going to happen that's right um but we also do sort of pop culture things mm-hmm. and uh, we're at a pop culture conference here in albuquerque new mexico yes and you're talking about ecology um, and also sort of green spaces yeah. and the construction of the university. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper that you presented about that, or you're going to present going about to present that? going to present tomorrow, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so something that I've been interested in lately is what's called campus fiction, which is this sort of genre of, there's a lot of novels based on campus. If you heard of Richard Russo, he writes like mm-hmm. Straight Man and these novels based on a campus. And so then we also have a lot of television shows, like I said, Community, Greek, Undeclared, these types of shows that are that specifically take place at a campus. And so I think it's important for us as academics to be a little introspective and consider, you know, how are we being represented in the pop culture sphere? Because it's important to know what people are thinking about us and, I don't know, is this an accurate representation or is it not? And so I am in the ecology section, so I'm kind of looking at... You know, when we think about the environment and university, oftentimes we're thinking about sort of, you know, what are universities studying to help us defeat the climate crisis and all these sorts of things. But I think what's also important is to consider what is the universe's actual physical and literal relationship to the environment? Like, what is the campus structure? What is the layout? What are we doing I don't know, with our campuses. So you're talking about green space, right? I'm talking about green space, right. And and that's why I'm talking about Jefferson is because Jefferson had that that conception of the academical village, which had the large green lawn because he was all about, you know, nature and intellectual and they're all together and you have to learn and you have to be in nature in order to learn. And so, so if we look at these popular culture images of, campuses today it's all about that green lawn and all these important community activities happen there in that green space so you know that's kind of what I'm looking at is what happens there what do you think that community and these other television programs are suggesting about the green space you know in terms of what the university is actually doing hmm well that's a good question. That's <laughs> kind of like the whole thesis of my talk. Um, well, one of the aspects I'm looking at is, as I was talking about before, the dominionist aspect. So Jefferson came at his, you know, his horticultural background and all of this. He's coming from a dominionist ideology. So humans have control over nature. So 
Um, when we look at our views of campus and our green space today, it's all very manicured. It's all very controlled. You know, it's beautiful, but mm-hmm. it's but it's man-made. And right. so, I don't know. I guess one of the questions I'm 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 considering is: Is there an alternative way we can develop our campuses that's more? I don't know, anti-dominionist, that we're kind of move away from that. And, and I'm not quite sure what that is yet, but... Sort of anti-totalitarian. Anti-totalitarian, yeah. Just more egalitarian, I don't know, environmental-friendly. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that would be quite yet, but I think it's interesting to think about different ways that we can be formatting our campus. But but we're all very, you know, emotionally attached though to this this beautiful image and the giant columns and just this beautiful campus imagery and we're very tied up with that, but it might be a little I don't know, destructive perhaps in terms of the environment. And of course, as the official theologian of the Good Church Honor <laughs> Cast, I'm gonna suggest that Jeffersonian Dominionism is a misappropriation of Christian theology, <laughs> and yes. I would welcome all your feedback via our various means of social media. You know where that all is on our regular episodes, so I'll, I'll leave that at that. So I have one last question for you, Elizabeth. Cool. And, um, you know, we're at this pop culture conference. Yes. We're talking about, and this is sort of a thing that's debatable, what defines that which is high and low. Yes. You know, and again, high and low sort of has this vaguely eugenic yes, it does. sort of category to yeah. it, which is really disturbing. But, you know, generally at this conference, we're looking at what's quote-unquote low culture. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously this conference suggests that it's valuable. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, or do you think, that this sort of examination of you know TV shows like Community or Breaking mm-hmm. Bad or comic books... You know, or trash action films or whatever. <laughs> you know, why, why is that valuable? And, and why mm. would you go ahead and go about doing that it's sort of so stuff? It's so valuable, yes. And I have to come back to my roots in anthropology to answer this and just say it's all about cultural relativism, right? It's all just... Define that for the dear listener. Yeah, so cultural relativism meaning... Um, cultural is relative, so... <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, <laughs> you no, know, absolutely. all of our perspectives... Are, are different from one group to another and you know so so that's that's one of the points I mean another another idea is just that I mean if we were only looking at high culture we'd be looking at a minority mm-hmm. I mean, we just had that that whole 99% right debacle the whole, <laughs> the, occupy whole the whole occupy movement right which which kind of exhibits that yeah, high culture would only be this minority percentage. And, and if we really want to understand humanity, which is all what social sciences and everything is all about, you have to look at 100% of humanity, which includes, quote-unquote, low culture. You know, And something that I've, I've sort of complained about in the past at this conference is I don't see enough NASCAR and football and you know all these sorts of things. You don't see enough of that here, I think, which would be my one complaint, you know. That's, Something that's, else is legit. That, you're, you're the first person <laughs> I ever heard a complaint about none of right? NASCAR at the and Southwest I, and PCA. It's not that I'm a fan of that, but that represents a large percentage of our culture. And so if we want to be comprehensive in our in our intellectual learning here, you know, we have to include that. So that is why popular culture is so important. It is a majority of our culture and we have to consider it. 
Well done. What way, <laughs> way to really, truly democratize the, no, uh, the academic study of popular culture all the way to NASCAR. That's right. I mean, you know, so I really, I really appreciate that answer uh, a whole yeah. lot. And, and, and thank you again. This is Elizabeth Ann Collins from uh, 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 Northern Iowa University. Yep. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, we're going to continue on with more highlights from the Southwest PCA. Thank you very much, dear listener. We'll keep coming back at you with more good stuff here following. Hello and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. I am still here at the uh, Southwest PCA. That's the Southwest uh, Pop Culture Association Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, very excited to be doing another interview. Uh, this time we are outside of the ambient noise that uh, the last interview you probably heard uh, or two you heard was on. And so we're inside a very, very comfortable hotel room um, speaking with Mr. Ian Daw. And uh, Ian, um, you know, we're friends. We've, we've known each other for a couple of these conferences. Why don't you just... Uh, Tell, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and uh, why you do it. Great. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Dustin. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. I, I have a background that's rather mixed. I started out in the sciences in molecular biology and biochemistry, and then at a certain point, I think I just turned 30 and decided I wanted to do something different. I, I did an MA in film at the University of Exeter in the UK, and that brought me into the world of, of comics and popular cultural studies as a form of academic expression. Um, so, my, like, for example, my thesis was on Terry Gilliam from Monty Python. Nice. And uh, I really loved his movies. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I covered all of those, and you know, if you ever want to talk about a, a Gilliam film, I'm your man. Um, and, and then I went on to do other work, and I got into comic studies, uh, really through the avenue of Alan Moore. I went to an Alan Moore conference in 2010 in Northampton and met Mr. Beardy himself, mm. which is why I will never cut this beard. And uh, it is a magnet. This is a auditory, not visual medium, dear listener. But it is a magnificent beard that is upon the face of Mr. Ian Daw. And uh, it got a compliment from Alan Moore himself, which to me is like the biggest compliment. <laughs> We played. We touched beards, you know. So you got a great beard, man. Um, so uh, that that was kind of my entree into this world. And right now, I do a lot of writing and scholarly work on a lot of different things in in pop culture. For example, I've uh, I'm published in a book about James Bond in popular culture. Uh, Sequart is a site that I write for, and I'll say more about them in a moment. But uh, for example, I was published last year in a book about Star Trek comics that Sequart uh, wrote. And just upcoming, we have books on Star Wars. We have three Star Wars books coming up. I'm contributing to a book on 1970s horror comics. I'm doing a chapter about uh, Dr. Spector, the original Dr. Spector from the early 70s. Um, And so I really have my fingers in a lot of pies. Uh, Because my interests are so wide-ranging, it all interests me. So if you give me the opportunity to talk about it, I will. And, um, And I fell into Breaking Bad really just out of meeting a few people here uh, in Albuquerque last year. I was always a fan of the show, uh, but last year I was here talking about Archer, mm-hmm. and uh, and I met, just as, as I was going, uh, Bridget and Brian Kalashoff from the University of Oklahoma, and uh, I think that's the university they're at. I don't know. Are they at Tulsa, or are they at Oklahoma? I don't know. They're in Toluca? Toluca? 
Toluca? How do you pronounce that? I don't know. I, 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 for some reason, I thought they were in Tulsa, at the University of Tulsa, which is the, the third major university in Oklahoma. I, I, perhaps they are, perhaps they aren't. Yeah. I apologize both Bridget and Brian for <laughs> Anyway, wonderful people. And, yes. uh, and, and Bridget, and they, they thought about doing a book on Breaking Bad because there aren't too many. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say, one of the, the popular book on Breaking Bad, and the one that will appeal to a general audience, is called Wanna Cook. Mm. It's by uh, Dale and Ensley Guffey, um, also Southerners, and, uh, and also Whedon Studies people, because I met them through Joss Whedon Studies, which is another one of my interests. This book that we've done is on Breaking Bad and Masculinity. But uh, mainly what I do, my sort of day-to-day, is writing for a website called Sequart, which is short for Sequential Art, mm-hmm. Sequart put together. Um, it's the, the official title is the Sequart Research and Literary Organization. And basically, it, it, we do all kinds of writing about every aspect of popular culture. It started out as a comic site run by uh, these two guys, Mike Phillips and Julian Darius. Um, but really, it's expanded to be more than that. And so I write reviews of comics and TV shows and sometimes thoughtful articles on films and, and, and on and on. Uh, so if you're interested in sort of pop culture analysis that could appeal to a general audience... Sequart.org is an excellent place to go. And dear listener, that um, website will be included in the show notes um, there on your generic um, MP3 multi-media uh, device, whatever it is that you're running on, uh, and we'll make sure you can get a, you can find uh, Mr. Ian Dahl's work and also the, all, the other great people there at Sequart. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of me and, mm-hmm. and what I do. So I have this interesting kind of weird background. I don't know too many people who have masters in biochemistry and film. Um, I, I, there are very I'm few a, of you, I'm certain. I'm in a rare breed. I, I have met a couple. I did. I met a woman at a conference in uh, Montreal a couple of years ago who had a PhD in biochemistry and a PhD in film. So I instantly hated her mm-hmm. <laughs> because she, you know, bested me in both of my fields. That's too but, funny. But that's the only other person I've ever met that had that peculiar combination of, of, of you know, experiences. Uh, I don't know how it affects me, but you know, I'll, I'll just take it and go. <laughs> right. Um, well, it's very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to ask another question. You know, we're here at this academic conference, and uh, a great many of our listeners think the only way to sort of uh, work your way forward in a career in film studies or uh, you know media studies, pop culture studies, is sort of take the academic route and uh, you know try to find yourself a, a university position. And uh, you know, we have these uh, fancy little name tags, and they say our university affiliation on them. And yours says independent scholar. Yes. Can you tell us what that's all about and uh, how that's a different way to to do what we do without sort of getting within the institution of academia? Well, independent scholarship is something that I think has been growing. I notice a lot of people at this conference and many of the others that I attend that have the title independent scholar. Um, usually they have a, another source of income, but generally speaking, uh, we contribute to scholarship. In other words, we, we write academic papers that are published in peer-reviewed journals. We network with fellow scholars, but we don't have official university appointments. Um, a lot of that comes from, a lot of independent scholars are people who were in academia and have gotten disenchanted with it and moved away. Um, a lot of people who are independent scholars are also people who wanted to be in academia but could never, took a circuitous route and could never find mm-hmm. a way into that world. Um, it's a growing group of people and I, I think it, we're becoming recognized as, um, as people who have something to contribute. Certainly my colleagues accept me and you know other independent scholars no doubt they do completely yeah. there's no question about it whatsoever um, it doesn't exactly carry the cachet on an author byline uh, but uh, I'd like to think and I know I'm being 
you know, too idealistic, that it is something of a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. That if you can play at this level, then you're allowed in the door. You can be in the club. Now, I have found that. Um, I'll tell you a funny story that maybe illustrates that point. When I was doing my master's in biochemistry, I was I, I had always an interest in film, and my first love in film was Orson Welles. Oh yeah, that yeah. was that was what I got into when I was you know because I worked at a library when I was a kid and I would just check out all the videos. So I just loved Orson and got into him at a very early age, and he was my intro into taking film seriously as a medium. So when I was in grad school, I. I came up with this notion of organizing an Orson Welles film series. And I was insecure about it because I just thought that the first night I was going to get up there and introduce the film. And I did them in reverse order. I started with Chimes at Midnight and worked my way backwards to Kane. And uh, because I love Orson's later work. Mm -hmm. And I was sure that the front row was going to be all film students who were going to be like, come on, who are you, Mr. Science Man? You know? And so I was really, really worried about that. It turns out it was completely the opposite. Um, in fact, what, it, what happened was they introduced me to their thesis supervisor, um, and whose name is Paul Heyer. He's a rather well-known Wells scholar. Mm-hmm. And Paul and I became really good friends. Um, and it just it, what it taught me is, you know, Paul said to me, I remember very early on, he said, well, you've read everything I've read. Why can't your smart guy, the fact that you're a scientist... Is means that you can obviously perform academic work at this level. So I found out, to some extent, I was pushing against a door that was already open. Yeah. And uh, and so it's nice to see. I mean, Paul, for example, wrote an excellent book called The Medium and the Magician. It was the first uh, serious book of, about Orson's radio work. Um, and so he would give me tapes of all of Orson's radio plays. Um, you might have seen, if you'd seen the latest American experience on War of the Worlds from PBS, Paul is on that. Mm. So that was kind of nice to see him there. He teaches at Wilfrid Laurier University in, in uh, Waterloo, Ontario. Um, anyhow, th- that's how I got into it. So really from the first, I had to get over this hump of thinking that I don't belong here. Um, but it didn't take long. I found it very welcoming. And, um, and by the time I shook Alan Moore's hand... I figured I'd arrived. Yeah. And that kind of like gave me the, the, uh, the fearlessness to go forward with this. And Sequard is a great example of, of the kind of writing that independent scholars do. It's, Sequard is not entirely academic, although it, it is sure. at times. And other times it's a bit more popular. You know, popular. View. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's scholarly stuff, intellectual material that appeals to a general audience. And we've had a lot of uh, collaboration at the site from from creators. Grant Morrison is a big supporter of ours, mm. uh, as is Matt Fraction. And so, you know, that's impressive. Pe- people like our stuff, and uh, and Grant, for example, has given us tons of interviews over the years, and and, uh, and we've published a number of books in his work. And mm-hmm. um, so it's 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 I think comics creators uh, appreciate that. I don't mean to mix film and comics. There's a big difference between those two academic fields. Anyway. Sure, there is. Um, Comics is such a new field that the creators get involved. But at the same time, Darren Aronofsky retweeted my piece about the fountain and said it was quite good. So, you know, other people are reading Sequart too. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I've managed to find my way in that world. And now that I'm in, I'm not getting out. I'll have to be dragged away screaming. Well, good deal, and and I, you know, I'm glad to hear that story because we have a great many listeners who who wonder if there's a way they can make it in. They don't really, you know, feel like they're a fit for a university post or whatever, and uh, you know, they want to do the sort of things that you know that we do on the show, and 
that, that, that film scholars and other pop culture scholars do. And so I, I love to hear your stories because I think it's an encouraging word. I think so, too. And, and, you know, a lot of... David Lloyd is an interesting person. He drew V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. the famous comic. And he, he told me, and, and, it, and other people like Hannah Nameen Shannon is another friend of mine. She, she's the editor of Bleeding mm-hmm. Cool. And, and, and Hannah used to have an academic appointment at Georgetown. She taught medieval literature. Um, and she's recently left that. And David and Hannah both had the same observation because they try to read scholarship about comics, and they're just there's no joy in it. Mm. There's no love in it. It's so tedious and ponderous because that's the way you're taught to write. Um, and, and I think there's a, there's a real hunger on the part of academics to engage in a more accessible way. Uh, that's not necessarily under the umbrella of this traditional institution that's grown up over the last 500 years. Uh, in, in our civilization anyway and and I think that's that that's a great sign for me so like David for example has tried to read academic stuff and hates it mm-hmm. but the, the creators really appreciate the middle road um, anyway that's so there are opportunities out there and I'll tell you to anyone who's listening that the creators do appreciate it and they do read it you'd be surprised who reads your work that is fantastic yeah, yeah. I mean the first time who was it that retweeted my oh um you guys do trash films. Do you guys know the movie Free Enterprise? I don't know Free Enterprise. It's a movie from 1999. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it starred William Shatner. It was about these these two struggling writers in L.A. who struggle with their lives, and they somehow hook up with this fictionalized version of William Shatner, who played by William Shatner, who mm-hmm. becomes their sort of guru. It was a an early proto version of what we have in geek culture today. It's mm-hmm. you see the, the the roots of stuff like Big Bang Theory in Free Enterprise. So. I met the creator, the guy who directed Free Enterprise, and he, you know, we exchanged business cards as if we were equals. Mm. And I thought that was really cool, you know. He uh, and he retweeted and shared my piece on Free Enterprise all over the place. So, I, I you know, you'd be amazed who you can meet. Um, I've loved that movie for a long time. I was really jazzed about that. <laughs> That's definitely one to add to the list, uh, dear listener. The syllabus just got longer. Um, there's another film recommend, and you definitely want to check that one out. Um, I have a couple more questions I want to ask you, Ian. Uh, first of all, you know, you're here because you're talking. Talking about Breaking Bad, you gave a paper, and I know you've, you've, you've chaired a panel or two and, you know, been part of roundtables and whatnot, but let's, why don't you just tell the listener a little bit about your uh, your paper and your reading of Breaking Bad, because that's sort of what we do, you know, our, our one of our taglines is the same a review show, it's an analysis show. Absolutely. And so I would, we want to hear a little bit of your analysis of Breaking Bad, if you don't mind. I like that, the review versus analysis dichotomy, because I always try to give analysis rather than review, mm-hmm. it's something I learned from Roger Ebert. Uh, but anyway, there's so Breaking Bad is a show that is so wide open and mythic. You know, you can read any number of things into it. And certainly it's a show that concerns itself with the priorities of middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's kind of obvious just from a cursory reading of that show. And so the book that we recently are going to publish, it comes out April 15th, is called Breaking Bad and Masculinity. And so we're looking at all of the ways in which masculinity is represented in Breaking Bad. There's one of the one of my colleagues has a chapter on uh, Walter White as Machiavelli, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's another chapter on. Well, I, I wrote two chapters um, for it because I was overcompensating. Uh, one chapter is on uh, the idea of male legacy, which I'll speak to, and the other one is on Breaking Bad as a western. Uh, it's very much 
has that slippery genre aspect of it and what that tells you about the male characters. But the concept of legacy is interesting. Right from the start of Breaking Bad, Walter White says, I'm doing it all for my family because he's just gotten this cancer diagnosis which he views as a death sentence. So he's concerned about what's going to happen after he dies. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized that all of the male characters are concerned with legacy. So I define legacy in a very specific way for the terms of this discussion. Legacy is an expression of an idiosyncratic personal ego that exists after death. Mm. It's not a general thing. It's a specific thing. It's I keep acting in the world in some way after I'm dead and gone. Um, and that can take many forms. What Actually, my inspiration for it was thinking about uh, the tomb of the first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huang, who died in 210 BC. Um, in fact, he was the first Qin episode of, uh, em uh, episode, Emperor of China. That's why that nation is called China today. Mm -hmm. um, and Emperor Qin Shi Huang had this weird thing about eating mercury. He thought that eating mercury was going to help him live forever. Um, and so he's buried in News an flash. ocean of mercury. <laughs> you know, he died. He went crazy. He died. <laughs> and, uh, died of mercury poisoning, obviously. And his tomb is like filled with this river of mercury. He was the guy who had the terracotta warriors. That was mm -hmm. right. That's thing, what, right? Yeah. So um, the mercury now is, of course, leached into the surrounding soil in China. Wow. And that, to me, is a legacy. That's a physical legacy. That's Qin Shi Huang still acting um, in 2015 in in, in China. Um, and so the, the idea of monumental tombs, you know, I look at an Egyptian pyramid and that's equivalent to me of someone spray painting on the inside of the overpass, I was here. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's about. It's about someone asserting that I existed, I, I was there. And of course there's a whole well, passage in Leaves of Grass and Walt Whitman is such an important part of the mythos of Breaking Bad that I have an extensive quote from Leaves of Grass about, you know, the noontime leaving, I see you face to face. Mm. Just as you looked upon the flowing waters, I looked. Just as you felt this, I felt it. You know, that's, that's conquering mortality because we're all going to die, but what's going to happen? How are we going to exist? It's an expression of ego. Um, Walter is certainly preoccupied with it, but then I started looking at all the other characters. Uh, all the other middle-aged characters are very concerned with legacy. And if they're not concerned with legacy, they recognize that others are. So, for example, let's let's take Hector Salamanca, mm -hmm. played by Mark Margolis. He's the guy in the wheelchair. He's doing, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, Dio Salamanca, yeah. Yeah, Dio. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters. I like, love him, yeah. The way that he talks to the, uh, to the, you know, to the DEA at the end, you know, mm -hmm. he's spelling it S-U, okay, we get it. Right. <laughs> you know, um, for him, the, one of the in a flashback when he's with the, his nephews, uh, one of which is Tuco, I think. Oh no, no, those are the two hitmen. Sorry, the two hitmen as children. You know, he has that that wonderful scene where he tries to drown one of the brothers, and in the end, he says in Spanish, "The family is all." Mm -hmm. So with Hector, his interest in legacy, because legacy takes a number of forms. One form is biological. Mm -hmm. He's interested in his family's legacy, and how do we know that that's the most important thing to Hector? Because what motivates him to act, to finally... I, I'm going to spoil everything here. That's uh, fine. This is, to finally, spoiler alert, dear listener, yeah. this is not a review show. We don't watch out for that. Well, that's the thing with, with academics is that we, you know, you got to talk about it. You can't mm -hmm. talk about it without talking about it. Right. So we talk about it. So what finally motivates him to kill Gustavo Fring is, the, is Gus kills his nephews and he mm -hmm. sits down he has to rub it in his face and he says your line will not survive and that is what finally gets to Hector you can threaten to shoot him 
Who cares? Take away his money? Who cares? I mean, the guy's had a major stroke and he's living in a, in a senior's home mm-hmm. with very little personal dignity. He doesn't mind that. What he, what he minds is his legacy. That's what provokes him to act. Think about, for example, someone, well, Gustavo is a fascinating character, but before we get there, think about Mike Ehrmantraut. Mm-hmm. Right? Mike, his legacy takes certainly biological form. He has a granddaughter. He's, mm-hmm. he's concerned about her. It takes a financial form. He wants to leave money after he dies. And financial legacy, in terms of my definition of legacy, would be something like an endowment that would act in the name expressing the values of mm-hmm. the deceased. That's active, right? You're still active in the world, right? right? The Arthur Vining Davis Foundation or whatever. That's Arthur Vining Davis's values still expressed through his, you know, through his money that's still around after he's gone. Um, but Mike also has an important legacy, which I call cultural legacy. Mike has a way of doing things, and that's to me, it's an artisanal thing. And Mike culture, capital M, capital C, includes things like respecting the people who are in prison taking care of them. He calls them the legacy people. Mm. So he keeps them on payroll, for example. Mike also knows that there are rules into this crime. There are rules. There are ways things are done. There's that wonderful scene where he sits and he's like, Walter, let me tell you. Things are done such and such a way. right? And uh, so Mike culture is what animates Mike. And what finally stimulates Mike's disgust with Walt, with Walter White, is that Walt has no respect for Mike culture. Mm-hmm. Um, Gus Fring is a fascinating example of legacy because we know so little about Gus. Right. We're told very little. And what we're told is unreliable. For example, um, it's not clear to me at all that Gus has children. I don't think he does. I, I think he was using that as a ploy to seduce Walter, right? Um, but So Gus doesn't have the biological legacy. He certainly has a financial legacy. He certainly has a certain sort of business intellectual legacy. But what is his legacy? But legacy applies to Gus in an interesting way. And I think this is one of the fascinating things about Breaking Bad. And this was sort of an epiphany I had, that Gus is America's legacy. Right? Because, now, think about Gus's life. And and so I actually had to dig through, like, declassified CAA documents and all this kind of stuff, because I really got into it. Because Gus is just from Chile. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as we all know, in 1975, the CIA overturned the Allende government in Chile and installed Augusto Pinochet. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Pinochet ruled until 1987. Gus left in 1986. And if you look at what was happening in Chile in late 1986, early 1987, it was a period where Pinochet's government was very much starting to crumble. And you know what happens when a dictator starts losing power? They grab the reins tighter. Um, so I view Gus as, and, and this comes, I don't mean to brag, but it comes partially from a conversation I had with Giancarlo Esposito mm. about the character himself. And uh, he was he told me that he always thought Gus was like the scion of some really powerful Chilean family, like the Kennedys of Chile. Mm-hmm. And but was very much in, inculcated with the Pinochet government. So when that started going south, um, he had to leave. So he leaves Chile in 86 as a result of American action, you see. And he comes through the Mexican border not long after, when the border was open. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes to America, and what does he find in America? A socioeconomic disparity that creates a market for the product that he wants to sell, methamphetamine. So America's... Maybe it's consequences is a better word than legacy. Mm. Gus, America created the situation in which a man like Gus Fring could operate. If America had not gotten involved in Chile, 
Gus Fring would never be in America. He would never do what he has, what he's doing. Gus Fring was created by America uh, in this really indirect way. He is America's legacy. Um, so that's that just provides an interesting way to read his character, because yeah. we know so little about him. Of course, we have Better Call Saul now, and uh, mm-hmm. um, he mentioned to me that he was uh, he was asked to be in Better Call Saul, but uh, but he's not going to. He's not going to do no, that. No, but he's he's holding out for. He wants to do another series about Gus. Yes. Gus the early years. Yeah. So uh, he said, if, if if Vince Gilligan wants to do that, I'll be happy to do it. But I'm not going to do Better Call Saul. Um, so that's interesting. Hmm. So finally, we get to the man himself, Walter White. And the the thing about Walter, see, the thing about Gus, we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. The thing about Walter is that he lies. He just lies, 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 lies. He lies mostly to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he says, I'm doing it all for my family. Yeah, maybe he believes that. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know how many other people do. But he, you know, he's thinking of leaving a legacy for his family. But he's one of these people that Gus's, uh, Gus, sorry, uh, Walter's ego is so huge that I don't think he has it in him to be selfless. He is an incredibly selfish, self-centered person. It's all about his ego and all about creating, I'm going to be remembered, damn it. I'm going to be, I'm going to create my monument in the desert where people can come and worship at the altar of Walter White. And what visually set me off is the, the image of the RV, the crystal ship, mm-hmm. set against the desert landscape. It's, it's, it's a tomb. But it's an impermanent tomb. It's in the illusion of legacy. Because an RV is, by its very nature, a temporary dwelling. Right. And the RV, of course, is crushed as the series goes on. And that, to me, is like the symbol of Walter White's idea of legacy. This is my legacy, but it's an illusion. Mm. I don't think it's, a, it's an accident at all that Walter drives an Aztec. You know, I think that's all part of the image system that they're trying to create, thinking about him as an emperor trying to create his own monument. So he has this legacy that he tries to pretend he has a financial legacy for his family, his biological legacy for his family, and later on it becomes a cultural legacy. And in Walter's case, the cultural legacy is the way he cooks meth. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't mean to sound glib about it, but I mean, I could cook meth. I mean, it's I have a degree in bioorganic chemistry. It, it's not that hard. Walter White did not invent right. meth. And a lot of people without any degrees do fine job making it. So exactly. there you go. It's not hard. Yeah. Well, even a guy like Todd can get it up to 76% purity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he's just a redneck racist skid. So mm-hmm. it's, right. it's, so it's, it's clearly not that hard. What, what's interesting about that is not the formula for meth, but the way he does it, his method, mm-hmm. his art, his culture and so he's like well he, which he tries in some haphazard way to impart to Jesse um, he doesn't try to do it with Gail because he doesn't respect Gail the way right. he should uh, but he he thinks of that as his legacy you know and the scene where, where at the last episode where Walter dies is you know he dies amongst the machines of his own making it's almost like Frankenstein, you know. He right. he dies, and he dies caressing the you know the, the, the reaction vessel, thinking this this is my art, mm-hmm. this is what I have lived for. But of course, he's deluded. It's he loses everything. Walter just lies to himself and loses it all. So he loses that legacy. He loses any intellectual legacy he could have had. He loses his family. I mean, his his biological legacy completely rejects him. Right. Because Walt Jr., possibly the only true hero in the whole show, yeah. is Walt Jr. Oh, because he sees exactly what 
you know, Walt Walt Jr. is an amazingly moral character. Mm-hmm. He's under no, you know, he's a good guy, good kid, and a straight up hero. And he, you know, does not like his dad at all and rejects him and rejects what he's. Even Jesse, his proto, his other son, his er son, mm-hmm. rejects him in the end. So he loses all sense of legacy. And that's the thing about Walter White. That part of his delusion was the idea: I'm going to create a legacy that operates on a biological level, on a cultural level, on a financial level. I'm going to be remembered. But of course, he's not. Yeah. He's even created this character Heisenberg that's kind of like his folk hero, mm-hmm. you know. But it's that's not going to be remembered either. I mean, the subtitle of Breaking Bad is, I think, in some circles, still officially quasi the Ballad of Walter White. Mm. It's it's that form of storytelling. It's it's not. It's a ballad. It's a moral tale. It's a fairy tale, um, which is why it's so awesome. It's it's because right. it's if it was a real story about a guy cooking meth, it would be about some skeevy dude and you know blowing himself up by setting the ether on fire. Mm-hmm. It would be like um, that Val Kilmer movie, The Salt and Sea, from a few from two thousand and two, which is where you know he talked about meth and it had that. Had, have you seen this film? This it's, it's I know it. Yeah. You know, Vincent D'Onofrio plays the big meth guy who, who said, you know, he snorted so much gack his nose fell off. So, he, mm. you know, he's, you know, as only Vincent D'Onofrio could play this guy with no nose who reenacts the Kennedy assassination with rats and powered cars. It's crazy. Um, so that's that's what real meth people are like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter White is, is not. And he's, he has this just a stupendous ego. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, he's given good advice and ignores it. He's told the way things work and refuses to accept it. Um, so in trying to create his legacy, he destroys it. In trying to maintain his family, he destroys it. You know, he strangles the life out of his family, even though he says he's doing it all for his family. Mm. Yeah, like my other chapter on, on Breaking Bad and Westerns, just because this is a related point, um, you know, there's the two basic kinds of Westerns, the Italian Western and the American Western. The Italian Western is all shades of gray. The mm-hmm. American Western, there's good guys and bad guys. Right. And Walter thinks he's in an American Western. He thinks because he's doing it for his family, because he's a suburban dude, that he's going he's gonna to win and he's in the right. The cavalry's going to come save him. Everyone else, Mike, Ehrman, Trout, Gus Fring, they all know they're not living in that world. Mm-hmm. Hank Schrader certainly does. And other than creating Schrader Brow, I don't think Hank has any kind of legacy. He curiously has no interest in it, but he sure knows when it's someone, when it's important to someone else, because he knows that's the way to get to Walter mm. to say that your your legacy is what matters to you. Um, and so, legacy matters a whole lot, except to Jesse Pinkman. Mm-hmm. I'll mention Jesse just briefly. Yeah, Jesse lives for the moment, doesn't he? He does. Because Jesse's young. Mm-hmm. Jesse's not thinking about death. He's thinking about survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's in that way closer to the female characters in Breaking Bad, who are also about the here and now. They're worried about protecting what they have, not what's going to happen after I die. You know, Skylar wants to just, she's thinking about just really basic stuff, like supporting the family, making sure the kids are brought up right, and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas Walters, it's like he has no interest in it, but he says he has no interest. It's just this stupendous male ego, you know. His mm. my family is an extension of me. The family is all, as Hector says. So that, there's so much. I mean, that's just one way of reading Breaking Bad. But you know, there's so much. Uh, I mean, there's so much 
so much to say about Breaking Bad. That that was that's a summary of the paper that I gave at this conference. Anyhow, well, that's fantastic. That's a great reading of it. And I mean, again, it's what we do on the show is we give readings like that. And uh, you know, um, Ian is uh, definitely uh, a scholar of great acumen. And uh, you know, this is a really really excellent reading, dear listener. You know, ch- check out the books that are going to come out from McFarland. Yep. Uh, the masculinity books coming out this summer, yes. correct? Uh, the masculinity books coming out April fifteenth. April 15th. It's already listed on Amazon. You can pre-order it. Uh, our second book is going to be on Breaking Bad and Catholicism, um, which Dustin here will contribute to as well. And uh, I have to rethink my chapter. Both my chapters came out of, uh, I wrote a paper in grad school about the Catholicism of Sergio Leone's Westerns, mm-hmm. um, which is obvious when you think about it. I mean, right. have, if you look at A Fistful of Dollars, they have The Last Supper, you know, they ring church bells, they drink wine and not tequila. What's going on there? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. know? So it's so there's that. And, and I think Breaking Bad has a lot of that too. I mean, there's a climactic scene where you know the, where Walter just empties a bottle of wine, and that's when he makes an important decision about his life, for example. And and there's a certain there's a certain you can get into the more theology of it, but there's a certain Catholic sense of the danger of free will mm-hmm. there, um, and uh, and also Breaking Bad. If you look at it as we are right now into the landscape of Albuquerque, you can either read this landscape as a world being built or a world that is in decay mm-hmm. and, and I think American Westerns read this as a world being built but an Italian and someone from a different culture would, would look upon this as a, almost like a, a post a fallen world it's a fallen world we do not live in a good world this mm. is a fallen world and uh, Breaking Bad is that it certainly seems to be yeah that sort of world in Breaking Bad yeah and Better Call Saul is a fascinating extension of it too which even though it's only been two episodes it has a lot of the Breaking Bad language, mm. visually speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I'm sure some of the listeners have watched Better Call Saul, but the whole first uh, segment of Better Call Saul uh, is shot in black and white, which is unsettling to begin with. And the first thing you see is the process of cinnamon buns being made. But in black and white, it looks very odd. You don't know what you're seeing mm-hmm. until uh, a little ways into the sequence and you realize, oh, they're making cinnamon buns. Because as Saul says in the, towards the end of Breaking Bad, when he, they buy their exits you know, strategy from Robert Forster, another great character, right? Love him. Uh, you know, he says, best case scenario, a year from now I'm managing a Cinnabon in Omaha. Sure enough, that's where we start Better Call Saul, in a Cinnabon in Omaha, where he's got like the fake mustache and the glasses, and he's managing the Cinnabon in Omaha. Um, And then it flashes back, excuse me, back to his life before Breaking Bad. Mm. And it's about very much his relationship with his older brother, played by Michael McKean, um, the great comic actor. So here we have two great comedians, Bob Odenkirk and Michael McKean, playing wonderful dramatic roles. Um, you know, we talk we talked a lot about it at dinner last night, all our breaking mm-hmm. bad group, about how that show is gonna be about ethics and it's also gonna be about this relationship between the brothers. Mm, yeah. Uh, because they both play it so well with such love between them, even though Michael McKean's character is a complete loon ball who thinks that like he wears like a tin he's literally like a tinfoil hat guy. Like he, he doesn't allow any electronics in his home and uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't allow anything electric because I suffer from electromagnetic hypersensitivity and all this. Oh. And and you know, you'd expect Saul, a, a lesser writer would just say, would have Saul tell him, You're crazy, man. Mm-hmm. But instead he he's just very gentle with him. Mm-hmm. They're very gentle with each other. And I love the way they play their scenes. It's yet another example of if you want great drama, hire comedians. Yeah. They really know how to do it. They don't break character, they commit, you know. Um, 
So I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of Better Call Saul. But there's wonderful stuff to be done in Breaking Bad. I mean, I think I think the field is still open enough that we can contribute more to it. There's so many ways to read that show. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you, thank you very much. And I've got one last question, and I'm going to be asking this, you know, all throughout the conference. You know, what we're doing, you know, here when what you're doing is sort of taking a low cultural form. You know, it's definitely not an example of what we call high culture. Of course, our show is called Good Trash mm-hmm. Genre Cast, and uh, we obviously are two people who are committed to the idea that low culture matters and that it's, there's important conversations to be had about that. Why, why does what we do with things like Breaking Bad matter? That's a good question. Um, well, okay, first of all, I, I'm not sure I buy the dichotomy high and low culture. In the, in the postmodern, Thank you. That's yes. postmodernism, mm-hmm. that there is no difference. If you see, um, if you ever get the chance, if you ever find yourself in London, England, go to see Shakespeare at the Globe. And you'll realize that Shakespeare's low culture, too. It's, a, it's like a Kevin Smith movie. It's all dick and fart jokes. Mm-hmm. And uh, very grotesque and very carnivalesque and hilarious. You never think... I saw The Tempest there last uh, two summers ago. and I mean, you'd never think that The Tempest, you'd be laughing your ass off all the way through it. But it's a rocking, rolling, roly-poly kind of thing. I mean, Shakespeare wouldn't have considered himself high culture. Um, but even if you do consider it low culture, even if you do consider popular culture low culture... If it ain't popular, it's not popular culture. And besides that, it's our culture. I mean, if our own culture, our culture is nanu, nanu, let may the force be with you, live long and prosper. That's our American, North American, Western culture. And if you don't think that that has value, you have a rather low opinion of the culture in which you live. Mm. One of my good friends in England, for example, uh, he's a professor at the University of Northampton, has tattoos all over both his arms and all over his torso. He looks pretty rough until you look and you realize that they're every spaceship that's ever appeared in sci-fi. What? He's got the Enterprise across his chest. He's got X-Wing fighters on his back. He's got, you know, the Babylon 5. He's got Serenity. He's got, you know, all the ships, the TARDIS, everything, you know. That's our culture, um, our shared common culture. And common, of course, is, has pejorative meaning to it. I don't consider it that way. And... Um, there's also this interesting thing that develops. Are you a scholar or are you a fan? And I think that's bullshit. We're all fans. That's right. You, you know, I just take the tools that were given to me, you know, in grad school, the tools of literary analysis and cinematic analysis and philosophy. I mean, we plan to write a book on how the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze is, affects Firefly, the show Firefly. Because mm. um, why not? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that to me is, you know, we're all disciples of people like, you know, Zizek and, you know, who, who really embrace the idea of low culture. Um, if you, you know, watch, if you have Netflix, watch A Pervert's Guide to Ideology sometime and watch, you know, Zizek do his crazy Zizek thing. I mean, I'm not a huge Zizek fan, but he's one of these people like Deleuze and Guattari and the continental philosophers who um, looked at, look with a leveling eye. You know, and all our culture. I mean, my man Orson Welles would have never, ever thought of himself as a as a high artiste, mm-hmm. even when he was making Shakespeare. Uh, you know, that's I just don't have any time for pomposity and that kind of stuff. Um, I think that all culture is low culture if you want to look at it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I don't know if uh, studying 
the, the music of Iggy Azalea isn't necessarily worth your while, but I know somebody's going to have a paper on here next mm-hmm. year. <laughs> Absolutely, they are. So there are things I'm not into, but that doesn't matter to me. I'm mm-hmm. not threatened by that. Right. Um, it's it's all good. And one of the great things about this conference is that there is such diversity. I mean, you can go from the zombie panel to the comics panel to the Doctor Who panel to the Whedon panel to the Breaking Bad panel, and they're all there. Um, so, you know, in this crowd, I don't think you're going to get much argument about what we do. I know some people criticize. Some people uh, say that we're just institutionalizing geekiness. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe not. I think everyone's a nerd these days. I mean, when Avengers makes $1.4 billion, that's not, the, that's not periphery. That's the mainstream. Yeah. That's our culture now. That's, that's, that, to me, is impossible to ignore. We live in that world. So why not study it? God, if anything's worth studying, surely our our culture is worth studying. Um, you know, when you dig into these things, you do find things, you do learn things, and it's a way of understanding who we are and what we're doing here. And mm-hmm. isn't that, you know, worth pursuing? I don't know. It's it's it seems to me that that is on every level. Well, you've absolutely got me convinced, yeah. and of course I've been convinced, right? But again, thank you, thank you uh, uh, very much. Uh, Mr. Ian Dahl, again, uh, he works at Secret, uh, does a lot of writing for them, got some books coming out from McFarlane, the uh, the Breaking Bad and Masculinity book, as he said, comes out April 15th, and you can pre-order it already at Amazon. Check the show notes for that, and uh, you'll find a link there, and you can get yourself a copy of that. So, exciting times. Thanks again for uh, just being on the show, Ian. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Good luck. <laughs> Well, that's it, dear listener. Uh, you now have heard everything that um, was going on there at Southwest PCA and how much fun we have. We're going to try to take a good trash trip down there next year and uh, bring some of the co-hosts down and record maybe a live show or perform a panel of what we do uh, in an academic sense there. And we just thought we'd give you some of this because, you know, we realize it's anti-trash month right now for February as we're doing our love theme, uh, anti-trash, and we want to give some real good old-fashioned good trash to you as well as we think about community and as we think about uh, Breaking Bad and also just think about the good stuff that comes out of McFarlane Publishing, McFarlane & Co., Publishing uh, Incorporated. So we want to, uh, again, thank all of our interviewees for uh, their time and what they've done. And, uh, again, check the show notes for all that good stuff of of what they talked about. And uh, we just thank you again for listening to this episode, and we will see you all next time. Way back when I was just a little bitty boy, living in a box under the stairs in the corner of the basement of the house half a block down the street from Jerry's Bay. You know the place. Well, anyway, back then life was going swell and everything was just peachy. Except, of course, for the undeniable fact that every single morning, my mother would make me a big old bowl of sauerkraut for breakfast.
contest to see who could correctly guess the number of molecules in Leonard Nimoy's butt. I was off by three, but I still won the grand prize. That's right, a first-class one-way ticket. 